Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Tanya Paris and Aaron Dieter-Wolf about their new edited collection, Baking, Bourbon, and Black Drink, Foodways Archaeology in the American Southeast, published 2018 by University of Alabama Press as part of the Archaeology of Food series. Paris and Dieter Wolf actually have a newer book together called Mastodons and to Mississippians Adventures in Nashville's Deep Past from Vanderbilt University Press out in 2021. Uh, Tanya Paris is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Florida State University, author and editor of an impressive number of articles and collections on zooarchaeology and paleoethnobotany. Aaron Dieter Wolf is a prehistoric archaeologist for the Tennessee Division of Archaeology and co editor of Drawing with Great Needles Ancient Tattoo Traditions of North America and Ancient Ink The Archaeology of Tattooing. Welcome to you both. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, I, I have to admit right at the top that I am swimming at the edge of my academic deep end today. Uh, I was contacted by uh, your press, Alabama University, about reviewing a different book in this series, but I was more interested in your title as a a Southerner and as someone who writes about Southern foodways, Um, but I come from a literature and rhetoric background, so I had to learn three new words just to read your biographies. Um, It's been very fun for me so far. Nevertheless, what interested me most about your collection was to learn more about indigenous foodways in the Southeast. There's, I think, a real temptation in the discourse of Southern food to give lip service to Native Americans for corn uh, and then go back to thinking of the South as something that's just black and white or post-colonial. So thank you so much for adding such richness to this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, well, first, uh, this is not your first collaboration. You've worked on three books together. Is that correct? Three books? 
That's not right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so Aaron, how did you come to collaborate with Tanya? What what kind of connects this book to the rest of your work together? Sure. Yeah. So we've been working fairly closely together since what 2007, I think. Tanya, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, And at that point, we had both just started new jobs. I had just recently started with the Division of Archaeology in Nashville, and Tanya was at uh, Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, which is just south of Nashville. And we were introduced at the annual Current Research in Tennessee Archaeology meeting, which is a a statewide meeting we host every year um, here in Middle Tennessee, where... uh, academics, professionals, and students have a chance to sort of talk about recent projects, you know, present on projects that they've been doing over the past year or new findings and this sort of thing. And I had been recently given the task of sorting out the data from this excavation that had taken place back in the 1980s in Middle Tennessee. Um, it was work that was done excavating a, a Native American site um, before a bridge replacement project. And there were hundreds of thousands of artifacts that were recovered at that time, but nothing had been done with it. It had just been sort of excavated for the bridge, put into storage, and then analysis had never been completed. And so I was handed this huge collection of artifacts with a, a mandate to, you know, here, finish this. Um, and so I had heard of Tanya's name, and so the two of us were introduced uh, to work, specifically to work on this project together. Um, I'm trained in uh, lithic technology, so in stone tool technology, and so know next to nothing about animal bones, about zooarchaeology. And a huge portion of this collection was animal remains. And so Tanya and her students then over the next five years, three years, three to five. Yeah. Um, sorted their way through the entire zooarchaeological collection. And, and ultimately, we ended up then, you know, publishing a, uh, a technical report on those excavations. And over that period, just, I think, just sort of realized that we worked well together. Um, I mean, Tanya is the, my most successful professional relationship I have ever had. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we have been collaborating on just all kinds of things since then. Um, from excavations at individual sites to uh, we did an emergency survey following the 2010 Nashville floods to document destruction of archaeological sites along the Cumberland River. Uh, that actually then turned into one of our two books together on the, uh, the archaic period shell sites here in Middle Tennessee. And then we've just sort of drug each other into our own individual interests. And so you know, Tanya is an archaeologist and does foodways, and she's taken me along on that. And in turn, I have dragged her into some studies about tattoo archaeology. And, um, you know, we just kind of keep coming up with new things to work on together. That's excellent. Tanya, how does the collaboration feel for you? Like, how, how does one do this kind of collaboration and keep it going now that you're not both in Tennessee either? Right. Well, you know, even when we were in Tennessee, we did a lot of our collaborating online, particularly in terms of writing. We, you know, we use Google Drive and Google Docs and we write. It's great because we can write simultaneously and we can, you know, talk on the phone while we write. We don't have to be in the same room. And we I would say that our writing styles are very similar so that there's not a lot of um nitpicking about, you know, what words work best or, you know, what, I mean, we really like, and maybe it's just because we've been writing together for so long. I just feel like I can't, 
I can still tell, I think, which parts Aaron have has written and which parts I have written, but probably no one else could tell because our, our writing is so similar now. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's when you find somebody to work with that you work well with, and that also um, holds up their end of the collaboration, right? In terms of deadlines and what they say they're going to do, and then cut you slack when you, when you, you know, maybe miss a deadline or kind of, you know, they help pull you along and vice versa. It's, you don't want to get rid of that. You want to keep that going. And, and we have fun when we're collaborating. And if we ever have issues, we just talk it out and we move on. That's great. That's great. I bet we all could benefit from one of those. Uh, so you've already mentioned a little bit of your different interests um, and your different backgrounds, uh, but how, Tanya, did you come to an interest in archaeology and food specifically? <laughs> um, embarrassingly enough, when it comes to archaeology, it was because of Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I told Aaron before we got on the on the horn that that was where my knowledge of archaeology ended. <laughs> yeah, um, I was in middle school when the first indie movie came out, and so you know it was very exciting as a as a tween to to see that movie. And at the same time, I had a um, science teacher who was like, oh, we should do a unit on archaeology. So he put together this fabulous, you know, like four week study or module on archaeology. And he, I'm from Florida. So he even brought an archaeologist from the University of Florida to, to visit with us and do a mock dig and whatnot. And so that really got me interested. Um, and because I'd always liked reading about other cultures and other people and how people do things differently or the same, you know, how we, we come up with different solutions to the same problems. Um, that it's always been something of interest of mine. And so ever since really seventh grade, I was like, I'm going to be an archaeologist. And, and you could ask anybody from my past and they'll be like, oh yeah, she knew pretty early on. That's what she was going to do. Uh, in terms of food, I, I have always liked to cook and bake. And as I became more of an independent, you know, young adult, I started doing more of it and reading about it and um, hanging out with friends that like to cook. So we would do like communal meals and, and whatnot, and um, try out new recipes. And at one time, I was even a founding member of a, of a cooking light supper club <laughs> up in Kentucky, <laughs> which was great, because we tried out so many new recipes and techniques. And um, I just really got into, you know, the, the home cooking aspect of things. And then when I was an undergraduate, I was got into like, you have to, you don't have to, but typically you choose an area specialty in archaeology that you focus on. Like Aaron focuses on lithics. I do zooarchaeology, which is the analysis of animal remains from archaeological sites. And so I did, I took a class in that as an undergrad and realized like that was my thing. Like that was the thing. I was good at it. It was interesting. Um, it's, it was like a puzzle and it was, it was just fascinating. And so then as I've matured, matured as a scholar, I've realized like all the different types of questions you can, you can answer with animal bones. Yeah, that's very exciting. That's very cool. So where did the idea for this particular book begin? Was there uh, something that, that caused you to see a need for it in the field? Yeah, Aaron. Yeah, so it's hard to remember exactly, but you know, over the years we've sort of 
our our take on I think collectively our take on archaeological collections has improved or evolved a little bit. Um, I know that you know I as a sto- as a stone tool specialist tended in the past to see things as very kind of black and white, right? People made stone tools and sort of overlook then the bigger questions of like, what did those tools mean to the actual people who made them and used them? And I remember, I don't know if I, I don't know if Tanya remembers this, but I remember being back in my hometown at one point around the time where we first started talking about this book and going to my local barbecue shop. Um, there in the town where I grew up and, you know, on the walls of the shop, they have all these old photos of church picnics of barbecues, you know, the old black and white style photos. And, you know, looking at these photos, these images of these groups of people, you know, gathered around these big tables of barbecue and sort of having this, an almost kind of epiphany of like, wow, like, what does that look like in the archeological record? You know, like that event, that getting together, that sharing of food, um, you know, feasting is a term that we use a lot now in archaeology. But, you know, 10 years ago it was not necessarily so much of a, of a thing, of a consideration. And, you know, we look at our own history and understand the importance of the dinner table and people coming together and the importance of community in these larger feasting settings. But didn't feel like that was really a thing that had been talked about much in the archaeological record at that point. Um, or if it had been, it was maybe kind of, you know, in high-handed sort of theoretical terms that didn't really talk about, you know, the individual people so much. Um, and so I feel like just sort of in the course of our collaboration, we started started talking about this and initially, I think, had planned to actually write a book ourselves on the archaeology of Southern foodways. And I think at the time, it was just like we had too many things going on. You know, we individually, we had too many deadlines. We had too many projects and side projects and kids and the whole nine yards. And so we ended up just going the edited volume route instead, right? So instead of trying to build the complete expertise and stand out here and say that we, we are the authorities on this, we wanted to bring in the good work of people who we knew in the archaeological community who were doing, you know, these individual research projects and sort of bring them into one space and highlight them in a way that that could be found outside of just the archaeological community um, and, you know, might cross that bridge into cooking and food ways then. Yeah. Tanya, will you say more about collecting those contributors, where they come from and, and how you got them into the volume? Um, yeah. And, and Aaron, I do remember talking about the barbecue book. <laughs> We had lots of lots of ideas around that. And who knows, maybe someday we'll come back to it, right? right. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, whenever you're you're putting together an edited volume, you have to think about who, if you're targeting specific people or you're just putting an open call out there. And we did a targeted um, approach to this book because we wanted a lot of different representation. We didn't want chapters that were just about this is what people ate. Right. Because that's not I mean, that's just one component of a food way. So we wanted other stories. And um, and as Aaron said, you know, we're we know, I think everybody that contributed to this, like we know them professionally um, from conferences or from reading their research. Um, I mean, there's several here that I've never met, but it's it's only because probably distance or whatever. But I know I'm familiar with their work. Um, and so in, in the course of this, we, you know, we asked scholars that had this kind of new take on some, some old questions, which is, you know, how do people feed their families and, 
Um, what does that, you know, how can we tell that archaeologically and, and what does that say about larger social structures um, and kind of cultural movements? And so, um, you know, the collaborators are, are pretty uh great bunch of people and they come from different parts of archaeology. So we have academics, we have um, people that work in the cultural resource management arena, we have agency archaeologists. And um, at the time that they were writing these chapters, some of them were students, but they've since graduated. So it was a nice mix of like young scholars, more senior scholars, and then from kind of this broad spectrum of archaeology. Cool. Well, in the introduction, you make a distinction between food and food ways. And I think listeners on the Food Studies channel probably have a pretty good understanding of food ways. But how is that term used specifically in the context of archaeology, Tanya? Um, well, food ways, and it's funny because I'm teaching food ways archaeology right mm-hmm. now and just gave this lecture yesterday. Oh, good. You're ready for it. <laughs> it's all in my head. Um, food ways are, you know, it's like everything that surrounds food and eating and it's not, but it's not just the food and it's not just the eating. It's the choice of what gets eaten and how it's grown or hunted or fished or caught or trapped um, or gathered or foraged for how it's stored and processed and cooked and consumed and discarded But then within that, it's not just the hows, it's the who's doing it, when are they doing it, why are they doing it, how are they doing it with what types of other things? Like, are they doing it in groups? Are they doing these activities with by themselves with mesh bags or baskets or ceramic pots or stone tools? Like what what's the the larger picture that goes with food waste? Because it's not just food. And much of archaeological studies about what people ate in the past has just looked at food. Mm-hmm. And this is this has a much broader, like you really need to have multiple data sets to bring into um, your interpretation. So it's, it's, you know, it's one of the things you have to have those other data sets. And if they're not available, then you can't really do a food waste study. You can just do a food study. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really interesting distinction. And it, it makes me think of what Aaron was saying about the where's going to be the archaeological record of a barbecue. There will be a Mm -hmm. few pieces, but there's a lot of the food way that maybe isn't going to last. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of it is not, you know, is not visible archaeologically. So um, we have, it's like, that's, that in some ways is kind of the fun part of the puzzle is trying to think about like what other lines of evidence can I use as proxies to bring in to inform and make this a more robust interpretation. Yeah. Well, you also make a distinction between diet, subsistence, and cuisine. And I think that might be helpful to give some definitions too. What are the significant differences in those terms for you, Tanya? Right. So diet um, is is what an individual or a group of people like a family unit um, eats on the daily basis and for special occasions where they're not making a distinction between daily and special meals. Um, so something like a vegetarian diet or the Mediterranean diet, right? Those are diets. We can I'm just say in those two, you could think immediately like what kind of the parameters are of those diets, right? It's, it's really specifically about the food. Um, subsistence. And typically it's, it's, 
in the context of a subsistence strategy is um, how people get their food. So when we talk about the subsistence strategy of hunters and gatherers, well, that's in their name, right? They're hunting and they're gathering and probably fishing and foraging and other things. Um, or, you know, agriculturalists, that's their subsistence strategy is agriculture. Um, so it's a mode of, of getting food. And then cuisine is the harder one to see archaeologically. It definitely like, you know, cookbook studies, um, ha- that's, that's a better place to look for cuisines. But cuisines are, um, they're often associated with a specific region or a geographic area. Um, it's based, a cuisine is typically based on, yes, ingredients, but ingredients that um, it's you know it's that have certain beliefs regionally ascribed beliefs or flavors or ways of, special ways of preparing them that go along with them, um, and that's also when you bring in dishes right and not just like oh corn but grits grits is a dish right there's a difference there and it goes along with a certain type of cuisine. Um, so we yesterday when I was talking to my class about this, you know, we were talking about different types of cuisines, like French cuisine is the one that everyone always thinks of first. Um, and, and there's a little bit of, you know, terroir that goes in there. Right. Like there's a there's a unique flavor that goes along with um, with a cuisine. And archaeologically, that's very difficult to see. Yeah, I was interested in uh, something that I had never thought of before. Uh, but like in the in the record, you could see the presence of ingredients, but you couldn't tell the difference between which ones were over here and which ones were in that dish. Like they were all there, right. but how were they separated into individual dishes of cuisine? Right, and you know, I mean, I think we're we're partially constrained by time depth. So the further back in time you go, the more difficult it is to kind of parse out an ingredient list for a dish. Um, and I think that too often people think of the the deep past um, and people were just, you know, they were just eating meat or they were just roasting some tubers in, you know, eating berries off the, the bush or something. They're, they're not it's more than that, though. People are are always flavoring things, even if you have a very basic dish of very simple ingredients, it still has particular flavor that people go for. So um, while we can't figure it out now, maybe someday we will, the closer we get in time to the present day, the easier, well, easier in air quotes it is. (laughs) Um, And so that, you know, and that's, that's something I'm looking at kind of in my more recent research is trying to, to bring in things like historic cookbooks um, and other writings to try to figure out what you know, how people were making meals and, and cooking dishes and what flavorings would have gone into it. Or if they didn't have certain things available to them, what might they have substituted for it? So it's super interesting, but it's really complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Well, for those like me with less, you know, prehistoric context, uh, Erin, can you kind of set up the time and place that's covered in the collection? Uh, kind of a lay of the land. I learned a lot of new words um, about when the Southeast was. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So the book has a pretty big scope, right? Yeah. Um, archaeologically, the first people arrive in the American Southeast. So let's call that east of the Mississippi and below the Ohio Valley. Tanya, does that sound about right? 
um, you know, as differentiated from the greater eastern woodlands, which would be everything east of the Mississippi. Uh, so people arrived for the first time in that region of the southeast about 15,000 years ago, give or take a couple thousand years, um, as best as we understand it today. And over then that vast expanse of time, you know, you have Native American communities living in the region, you know, it fully embedded in the landscape. Um, for, a, for the first several thousand years, it's still the end of the last ice age um, from a geologic perspective. And so, of course, the plant and animal communities are much different at that time. Uh, beginning by about 8,000 BC or so, it's transitioning into the Holocene. Uh, which is our, our modern geologic epoch. And so the plant and animal communities begin transitioning to what is more familiar with us today. Uh, you have the distinction of the megafauna, of the mastodons and the saber-toothed cats and things like that, and the arrival of the, the animals that, that we recognize, right? The big animals, bear and uh, deer and uh, wolf and things like this. Um, and over this huge period of what we call the archaic period archaeologically, uh, it's about 8,000 years of the Archaic period, I think, where people are living in forager communities, uh, traditionally hunter-gatherer, right? We've called these things hunter-gatherer societies, hunter-gatherer communities. I think Tanya and I both prefer more the term forager. Um, you know, hunter-gatherer as a, as a concept tends to preference the idea that most of the food consumed was being hunted and then tends to be tied into the whole man-the-hunter idea. Whereas looking at this objectively, I feel like we know we know much more now in contemporary archaeology that a lot of the contribution to the daily caloric intake and the daily cuisine was being made by women and children and the elderly is being gathered or foraged or fished or comes in in other ways than hunting. So it's during the archaic period, people are living this forager lifestyle. Uh, they haven't yet settled down into permanent villages and instead are moving around the landscape seasonally to forage for resources that come ripe at certain times. And then by about 1000 BC or so, we see the transition into the woodland period, what we call the woodland period archaeologically. People settle down into permanent villages. Um, the domestication of plants and animals that began during the archaic really sort of takes off during the woodland or comes to fruition, I guess. And we start seeing widespread horticulture. Um, so not quite communal agriculture necessarily, but at least individual gardening um, it, to support being permanently in one spot on the landscape. It's also during that period that we start seeing the, the construction of earthen mounds widespread across the South, sort of this increasing social complexity, you know, the differentiation of the haves and the have-nots in society. And then all of that... Um, Flores further in what is then the, the Mississippian period, the last prehistoric period, which lasts from about 1000 AD, um, in some places up to the arrival of the first Spanish um, explorers in the New World in the 1500s. Now, so the book covers all of that, as well as then leaping into the historic period with the discussion of uh, Native American hominy. Uh, production and then also um, Nick Loraquente's contribution on the archaeology, the the bourbon, uh, I'm sorry, the foodways of whiskey, whiskey foodways archaeology, and that lasts then into the 19th century. So it's you know it's it's a fair amount of uh, a fair amount of space that we cover here, and you know unfortunately as a result you know there's not really room to dig into like the really nitty gritty details of archaic foraging for example, but we can talk about 
turkeys a little bit, or we can talk about um, earth ovens a little bit. And so that's sort of what we're doing is sort of these high points throughout this human experience. Good. That's a good transition uh, to talk to Tanya about your essays. So you have two essays in the collection. Uh, your first one is on bone marrow and, and white-tailed deer, um, and then a co-authored essay on turkey. Uh, and both of those relate to the evidence of foodways um, and this deepening understanding of social hierarchy and social structures. So kind of in general, how do we get from bones to social status? <laughs> how do you make those uh, those connections? Not easily. Yeah, I bet. Um, <laughs> it's And, you know, it's one of those, you have to have a lot of other types of evidence. So... Um, you know, where do the bones come from? What What's their context? Were they from houses? Were they from trash pits? Um, were they from mound, you know, like earthen mound settings? Um, and, and even if they are from more domestic contexts, do we think that the people that lived in that space um, were, you know, elites in the village, the chief and their family, or um, were they farmers? Were they craftspeople? So that's, that's, a lot of information that has to be processed and figured out before we can then make the leap to, oh, they had deer in their, you know, in their house, so they were high status or something. Um, I think people have tried to do that, and it doesn't doesn't stand the test of time, right? When you start looking at other aspects of it, so um, it's this whole question, even especially with the bone marrow, came up for me probably in like two thousand three when I first started working on the collection from the Fuchs site, which is uh, the one that this essay is about. And I was actually at the University of Kentucky working at that time. And um, looking at the collection, which was very well preserved overall, there were lots and lots of broken long bones. So femurs, humerus, uh, tibia, that kind of thing. And, um, And they just were broken in such a way that it was like the same kind of breaks over and over and over. And I was working with uh, then at the time, an undergraduate student, she now has a, a PhD and is a, an academic archeologist, but, um, and we were talking about these breaks and she's like, Oh, I, I've seen these before. And I'm like, so have I, but I don't know where. And then we started looking through kind of our reference resources, you know, papers and stuff we had printed out and we found pictures of them. Um, these same kind of bone breaks from, you know, another archaeological site, different time period, not at all related, but same types of breaks. And it was from marrow extraction. And people had done all these um, kind of experimental archaeology studies to prove that this is, you know, this is what caused this types of fractures, not, it's not, you know, animals trampling the bones mm-hmm. or scavengers, it's, it's human, human causation. So that's why I learned a so new that, word, pre-depositional pre-depositional. Did I get that right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Before it was deposited, right? The bones were broken. They weren't broken after deposition. Um, and and here's another word, taphonomy. So it's a taphonomic study, right? Looking at what's happening to these things uh, once they're discarded. So, so that set me on this path for a really long time thinking about these bones, right? It was, I don't want to say it kept me up at night, but it's definitely something I spent a lot of time thinking about. And realized that like I was the only one that was recording them for these Mississippian period sites. So these later prehistoric sites. Um, And the first time I sent this study out 
to like to a journal to be published and it, the reviews came back. One of the reviewers just took me to task for even asking this type of question, looking at trying to find marrow extraction in an agricultural community because to them, marrow extraction was something that starving people did. And, um, and you know, that, that just was not an appropriate question from, per the reviewer for this type of, of community. And I was just like, well, fine, <laughs> like, I'll just wait, you know? So I just put this study on the back burner and um, did other research. And actually the, the more of these same time period sites, right? Mississippian period sites that I worked with, same kind of evidence, still find lots of bone marrow. And, you know, just digging back into ethnographic records and historic records and accounts of what um, people that hunt deer, uh, what they do with things like marrow. And it, of course, it varies culturally. There's a lot of cultural variation, but it's not a throwaway thing, right? People aren't throwing away the good fat. Um, so, so that, so in this particular study, I was able to make the distinction between bone marrow extraction, which is, you know, that nice long piece of fat in the cavity of long bones versus bone grease, which is where the bones have to be broken up into tiny pieces and boiled in, um, water or some other liquid for, for quite a while to get the grease to come out, you know, to be released from the bones and then it floats to the top and it can be skimmed off. That's a much more labor intensive process. Uh, what does it have to do with status? Well, it, I can't say for sure that like high, you know, elites or high ranking individuals are eating the marrow or the bone grease, but, um, there were, 99% sure there were cultural rules about who could have access to that and when. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like you have to push the envelope, right. On the interpretations as best you can based on your data and then see how they might stand up to testing with other data. Well, let's go back to that idea about the assumption that eating bone marrow would be an indication of deprivation, uh, because as you suggest, it might, that might not be completely accurate. Uh, and certainly, bone marrow is a luxury item today, uh, a very fancy kind of appetizer that I have ordered. Uh, so Aaron, say a little bit more about where that assumption comes from and why it might be inaccurate. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sure. Yeah. So one of the things that archaeologists have to escape to to really interpret the past in a meaningful way is our own biases. And that idea that Tanya mentioned that, you know, people are like, well, bone marrow is something that starving people eat. Like that's actually sort of a, a theme that underlies a fair amount of our collaborative research. Um, I mentioned earlier the study we did along the Cumberland River after the 2010 floods. And a lot of those sites that we worked with were these massive mounds of freshwater snail. So very small freshwater snail that was being fished out of the Cumberland River in these incredible quantities. 
and forming these giant middens, these giant mounds um, that in some cases we could look at in Tanya's excavations and see that there was no interruption in the de level of deposition of the shell. So no, no break in how regularly it was being deposited for hundreds of years. In one case, 60 generations worth of people living at this site were depositing the same amount of snail. Now, for a lot of people, they would look at that and be like, well, no one eats snail other than the French, right? And so it's, it would not be immediately something that would be considered a food way of a forager society. But then you take the evidence from those excavations Tanya did and you say, well, if, so, if people are eating something for 60 generations, that's not starvation. That's not, um, you know, being confronted with having to extract a unwanted food resource from the environment. That is something that is, is they're learning from their ancestors. It's being passed down. They're managing those populations of shellfish in a way to continue being able to get them out of the environment. And so it becomes a completely different picture than starving people ate snail. Yeah, Tanya, what do you want to add to that? Um, well, a lot of the uh, stuff that Aaron was just talking about, particularly these kind of erroneous interpretations, are made by archaeologists that are not foodways archaeologists, mm -hmm. right? And so... And I, it's not, and I'm not at all trying to say that foodways archaeologists are super special, though we are, um, or that you know that there should be these distinctions. But that you know they're coming at these sites and their research with different questions in mind, mm -hmm. and so they may not even be looking at the foodways picture completely because the data haven't been completely collected, right? If you're if you're not interested in bones then you're not going to put a lot of effort into collecting even the most tiny bones um, that could be at a site, which can change how you view what people were doing with, with their food in the past. So, um, you know, some of it is, is, is uh, just that people need, as Aaron said, people need to recognize what their biases are and that they're rooted in their modern um not only their modern life, but also kind of their historical framework and, um, and, you know, acknowledge that and then try to figure out a way to work around them, which for me has been reading lots and lots of ethnographies about um, other cultures and, and people and how people do things and cookbooks and all sorts of things. I mean, you, you know, if you read some historic cookbooks, there's some wild stuff in there yeah. right? that people would eat. So it's like, <laughs> I wouldn't eat it today, but that doesn't mean it, it's not good or good for you or edible or whatever, you know? So yeah, yeah, it's just getting rid of your own biases to, to be able to open your mind to what could have occurred in the past. Hmm. Well, Tanya, you're also the co-author of the next essay about managing and domesticating turkeys. Um, and that essay argues that Native Americans created niche environments that benefited both people and turkeys. Uh, so you write that both species gain a reliable source of food as turkeys are easier to hunt and they protect the crops and the, the turkeys get protected and eat the nuts and seeds. Um, so describe that relationship between humans and turkeys uh, and how it led to that domestication of, of turkey. And, and again, the, the evidence that gets you to that story. Um, again, this is another one of those questions that took a long time to get to the publication of the, the research because 
it was something I thought about for a long time. And it goes back to that, that same Mississippian period site, the Fuchs site. I was working on that collection and noticed that the turkey bones that we were identifying were larger than the ones in our modern comparative collection. So they were larger than modern turkeys. And our comparative collection was a mix of wild turkeys and like Kroger turkeys, right, from Thanksgiving that people would bring in. So those should have been bigger um, than a wild turkey. But these were really big. And I was like, I don't know what's going on with this. You know, maybe it's just range of variation within a species because I don't have a, a large enough modern you know, sample to, to make that distinction. But then um, looking at some additional sites and then working with my then student, Kelly Ledford, who is, um, is now since graduated and, and a professional archaeologist, you know, she noticed the same thing. She's like, these are bigger than anything we have. I'm like, they are. So we're like, there's something going on here. Um, so we focused on looking at these turkeys as possibly having been domesticated um, locally in the, you know, the prehistoric period. And we can't say for sure that they were domesticated in the kind the kind of um, traditional definition of domestication, but definitely there's management going on and possibly something like cultural domestication, right? Where they're such a, a part of the life of the people that were living there that, um, you know, they could have had names for them. We don't know. They could have, you know, had individual ones that had personalities and, and whatnot. Um, do they, I don't know. We're not a hundred percent sure if they kept turkeys like in their communities here in the, the Southeast um, for sure. That was going on out in the Southwest around the same time. They, they have actually excavated Turkey pins. Um, but, you know, the whole idea of, of people interacting with these animals is, you know, a, as a benefit to them, but also in some, it was beneficial to the turkeys. And, and we can see that with modern flocks of turkey, wild turkeys that are out scavenging in, in um, cornfields or cotton fields or tobacco fields. And it, it's not even so much that they're after the, the corn or, you know, anything like that, but they're, they're after the pests, mm-hmm. right? The insects that are in the fields. And so they're amazing insect control. So it, it could be one of those things where it's like, oh, we'll encourage the turkeys to hang around because they help take care of the bugs that are eating, you know, it's eating our crops. And also turkeys are very territorial and um, are, you know, are good kind of like advanced warning system, right, for intruders. So that's another kind of, I can't prove it, but it's just, you know, based on what I know about turkeys. Guard and, turkeys. You know, what Guard turkeys, that's right. <laughs> That's really interesting. Well, and there is a short note uh, within that essay about turkey bones that might have been used for tattooing. And I know, Erin, that's one of your special interests. So just as a side note, do you want to say any more about that connection between turkey bones and tattooing? Sure. Yeah. So um, in the time between when that book was published and this summer, then we actually published that study uh, earlier this year showing that turkey bone tools from a archaic period site here in Tennessee were in fact used to tattoo. Um, and we came to that conclusion based on the microscopic wear patterns on the tips of the bones. Um, when a tool is used for something, it leaves a very distinctive pattern on it. And it's a different pattern. You know, if you use a rock to cut grass or a rock, a stone knife to uh, butcher flesh, it's going to result in different microscopic wear patterns. And so based on the wear patterns on these turkey bone tools, we were able to show that they were in fact uh, tattooing implements going back to 3200 BC-ish. 
um, which is some of the oldest directly identified tattooing tools in the world. Um, but I think that also just sort of speaks to what Tanya was saying about, you know, this, this interconnected relationship that might or might not be what we recognize as domestication is that it doesn't stop with food. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're not, it's not entirely clear where the, where those food ways end, you know, so the turkeys are providing food for the people that are rearing them or tending them, but then they're also providing feathers as a critical resource and tools for bones. And so all of these things are being, you know, extracted from the turkeys who are then themselves benefiting from that exchange in other ways. Right. And then the artistic representations of turkeys on, I, I wasn't sure I understood fully, but that was a beautiful little diagram of the, the turkeys. Do you want to say more about that? Tanya? Gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. So they're right. That's, that's another thing. I mean, there's a, you know, a famous saying in anthropology from uh, Claude Levi-Strauss, you know, things that are good to eat and good to think. Um, and so that sometimes, that sometimes forms the basis of, of my thinking about what animals were being eaten and which ones weren't, or, you know, how were people thinking about them in the past and how do you overcome the, um, you know, the idea that an animal is food, but also has some kind of special other category that it fits into. Mm. And so in this chapter, we do talk about, you know, turkeys that were represented in art and one of the, the more famous representations is on a marine shell gorget, which is basically a pendant, right, that's strung around the neck. Um, and they vary in size, but typically, what, Aaron, they're about five, six inches across in diameter, maybe a little bigger. And they're, they're made out of um, marine shells that are, the ones I've identified have been lightning whelks or left-handed whelks, which are in themselves very special animals. Um, and the, the motif on the marine shell gorget with the turkey is called a turkey cock motif. And it's, it's two male turkeys uh, facing each other with a, a striped pole in the middle, which is believed to be the axis mundi, which is, you know, the part of the um, origin stories of, of Southeastern Native Americans. And, you know, what exactly the turkeys are representative of on this gorget we, we don't know, but they're there. And so it means something because out of all the gorgets that these shell gorgets that have been identified in, in Tennessee and other areas of the Southeast, you know, there are, the animal representation is very limited. Um, so there's the turkey, there's spider, there's, um, can't, is there a, I can't think if there's a bear. I don't think there's a bear on the, on the shell gorgets now. That might just be it. It might just be turkey and spiders. Wow. And then there are people, anthropomorphic beings. And just to interject there, Tanya, you know, that's very different from what you see, for example, in the ceramic sequence. So the ceramic effigy bowls, uh, so ceramic vessels that are made to look like, you know, people or animals from that exact same time period. I don't think there are any representations of turkeys. There are ducks. Hmm. Um, but I think ducks may be the only birds that appear in them, but turkeys do not. And instead, they're, those are focused on a different set of animals. So, you know, there are differences within the canon of art. It's, again, not all, not one size fits all. That's fascinating. And I can't wait for you to write that article and tell me more about it. Erin, <laughs> uh, will you talk about the whiskey essays? That's part of the title, right? Uh, Black, well, sorry, I got out of order, but it's fine. 
um, the Black Drink essay. <laughs> it's authored by Thomas Emerson, uh, but it's from that title, uh, Baking Bourbon and uh, Black Drink. So tell us a little bit about Black Drink. What is it and, and what part does it play? Sure. Yeah. So, so Black Drink um, is sometimes called White Drink um, as well, is this concoction made out of the Yupon, Yupon holly leaves and twigs, which are parched. And then uh, that extracts this caffeine from them, this natural caffeine. And then that is, we think, perhaps mixed then with other plants, including um, button snake root and willow roots, and turned into this, this tea, this hot tea. It's drunk hot, and it induces vomiting. Um, so it's not actually subsistence. It's a, it's a purgative. And it had a really important role historically in um, Native American busks. Uh, these are green corn ceremonies, they're sometimes called. So they're annual, anim, annual rites that take place as the corn starts to ripen. And historically, on day two of the busk, uh, predominantly men would engage in this ritual where they would drink black drink and vomit. And um, you know, conceptually, in, in, the, in the symbolic framework, this was seen as purging the things that had been consumed into the body from the year before and readying the body for consumption of the new corn, consumption of the new crops moving into the future towards the next year. Um, but you know, Thomas Emerson, who writes this, does a really great job talking about then how that's, it appears in the historical literature, in the ethnographic literature, because of course the Spanish particularly were just fascinated with this, this process, right? <laughs> the, the drinking something until you vomited is unlike really anything they understood. Um, and so it shows up in the European observations after about 1527. But uh, as Emerson points out, we do have good archaeological evidence of this going back to uh, early Mississippi and Tanya. I, I don't remember the exact date, but during the Mississippian period, there's evidence of black drink consumption at the site of Cahokia. And Cahokia, if, if you're not familiar with it, listeners aren't familiar with it, is, is this amazing archaeological site, is the largest archaeological site north of the Rio Grande. Um, it, most of it was situated across the river from St. Louis. And from about 1050 AD up until about, what, 1350 or so, it was, it was everything in North America. The, the dependent population that lived there was larger than the number of people that lived in London at the same time, to give you an idea of you know, the scope of this thing. And it covered thousands of square miles on both sides of the Mississippi River. Well, Yupon holly does not grow in that area. Um, it grows in the more coastal regions of the southeast, particularly along the Gulf of Mexico. And so the population at Cahokia you know, was working with trade networks to bring in these, these particular plants for specific ritual uses. And the reason we know that is because there's been some fantastic residue analysis done. And this comes into, you know, sort of shooting lasers at archaeology, right, where you can get these these residue signatures, the elemental signatures of what was held within ceramic vessels, particularly. And so at Cahokia, they've been able to show that these certain specific types of ceramic vessels held liquid that was high in Yupon holly in caffeine. And so extrapolating from that then, you know, this, these become part of what's called black drink ceremonialism, which is, you know, again, like food ways, is this bigger, bigger picture of how these things fit into Native American society. 
That's fascinating. And, and I think I've had, I've heard other black drink has sort of come into my orbit as like a c- Coke and black drink, uh, somehow having some, uh, it symbolic, is, it is caffeinated, it's caffeinated, right? it's black. That's, I think maybe where it ends, but, but it was a very nice literary metaphor. I think <laughs> I've, yeah. I've had, um, I've had black drink stout. Oh, that um, some some graduate students made at a, a university that will not be named um, as part of a class project, and and it was it was good. It was very bitter, but it was good. Okay. I've also just had you know black drink tea, and it's extremely bitter. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. And it, and the other thing too that is interesting about the black drink is that that holly plant is a very specific. It's a it's a certain species of holly, right? It's, Ilex vomitoria, and it really only grows in the deep south and the coastal plain um, along the Gulf Coast. So for it to be showing up at places like Cahokia, which is pretty far away, you know, that adds another layer of complexity. And, and then we have to think about trade networks and, you know, what type of um, importance was placed on on this plant that it was being traded, you know, all the way into Cahokia, what was being exchanged for it, you know, who were there people that managed these holly, they call them groves. I don't even know what you call a bunch of holly shrubs, but you know, were there, were there groups of people that managed them? And this was, you know, one of their specialties and that they were trading, you know, the, the dried leaves up into the interior we don't know, but it's definitely something we want to find out. Yeah. And there again, we, we fall into sort of the, you know, the deep end of, of foodways archaeology, right? So if there is a steady supply of holly coming into the mid-continent from the deep south, then that implies that those pop, that those species or plants are somehow being managed. Mm-hmm. If it's an important ritual substance, then there has to be a constant supply of it. So are we looking at, you know, groves of holly being tended in the deep south? Or is it reasonable to expect that they're just randomly finding these plants growing and, you know, just harvesting them as they find them? Or is this actually a more dedicated and intensive process? And what does the archaeology of that look like? We have no idea. Yes. I don't. I don't. But also, I was going to say that um, it is not just the leaves that are being you know, taken to Cahokia, traded or, or paid in tribute or whatever, but the, the recipe for the drink. Yeah. Right. And it's not just the other ingredients, but it's the the preparation methods, um, the you know, probably the temperature, the types of vessels it's being made in. All of that has to be with it. Otherwise, it's not then the black drink. It is something different. Yeah. The ritual comes with it. Right. Not just the mm-hmm. leaves and the, the object, but the that intangible part that you don't leave the behind. Third way the third around way. it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the next essay, or, or the, the bourbon essay from the title, jumps us pretty far into the future from the Mississippian period. Um, so that's from Nicholas Laraquente, um, and it focuses on five whiskey distilleries that are operating in the 1800s. So again, more modern history than most of these other chapters. Uh, so why was it important to you as editors to include that essay and also to call it out in the title? Uh, Aaron, what do we learn from this story of bourbon? Well, we wanted to include Nick's research because he he was a colleague um, and you know someone we were familiar with and had uh, you know interacted with a lot in the past. Um, and I at least I find his work on on the whiskey foodway to be fascinating. 
And I mentioned to you in our discussion beforehand how when we sent this volume out for review, one of the reviewers came back and was very grumpy about the fact that we would consider whiskey to be a food way. Um, you know, and we're not really sure why, but but they hated that idea. But you know, when you consider the process of making whiskey or making bourbon, you know, it's integrally tied integrally tied to corn and to grains. And then the domestication of those grains and in corn that, you know, that travels back into the native past as well. And I felt that the, the, the work that Nick was doing, this was sort of at the early edge of his research into this. And he's expanded it some since then, but is really getting at some really interesting questions about how we consider the industries and the foods of the past and how we tend to have tended to preface the stories of the people at the top, right? Of the plantation owners, of the landowners, of the industrial distillers. Whereas here in the story of whiskey, you have this much bigger picture of it happening at different levels, at the, at the household level, at the um, you know individual level and moonshine distilling and how it, it percolates down through the entire society. And by just talking about industrial distilling or just talking about, you know, the, the whiskey we're familiar with today, you lose sight of the contributions of enslaved peoples, of women, of, you know, minority populations whose stories have not been as widely told. And so Nick, in getting into this, you know, looking at these different levels of whiskey production, I feel like is really opening the door to talk about those other stories. And the, the baking title or the baking of the title is represented by Lauren Walls and Scott Keith's essay on earth ovens as persistent places, which was another new term for me, but I'm going to start using it in daily uh, conversation. Uh, what is a persistent place, Tanya? Uh, and then how do those earth ovens become important social sites as well as those practical tools for baking? So a persistent place is an area or a spot on the landscape that is important to people so that they come back to it again and again, or they um, invest some kind of, you know, effort, time, labor into maintaining it. Um, it's, it's definitely usually not a, someplace people are living all the time, right? It's not their typical home base, but it is somewhere that they come back to over and over. And, you know, this chapter, I think, is is so awesome because the amount of work that went into the archaeology of this site and the earth ovens that they're talking about um, to then make this leap from technical report to a much higher level thinking of the role of cooking features in social context. Um, it, to me, is not surprising that an earth oven would be a persistent place. I mean, we think about our own kitchens today. And if you, if you could have a party at your house today, where would everybody by the end of the night be standing or sitting and talking in the kitchen, right? No matter how big or small your kitchen is, everyone ends up in the kitchen. There's something about them, um, that draws people in and, and these earth ovens were, you know, likely placed in areas of the landscape to make use of either rocks that were used in the, the baking 
or or and or um, places where the resources that were going to be cooked in the earth oven were were prevalent, right, and maybe seasonally abundant. So um, you put a lot of effort into making these earth ovens are, are pretty big. I I excavated one in 2014 in Tennessee, and they're big. Um, they take a lot of effort to to create, and so coming back to them over and over makes sense, right? From a, a kind of an efficiency standpoint, um, but also it's you know it's it's you know like oh go to where the earth oven is, and that's where you know the good whatever plants you're you're exploiting are at that you're going to be you know, grinding up and and putting into to some kind of flour and, you know, something resembling bread that you're going to bake. That's really interesting. Uh, What other themes do you see running through the whole collection? So we've kind of highlighted your essays and the the essays of the title, but are there other connecting threads? Uh, Tanya, why don't you go first? Aaron's pointing at me. Yeah, when I saw this question, I was like, oh, this is like a dissertation <laughs> exam question. <laughs> I often feel like writing these interview questions is kind of like setting up someone for a good exam. But today I felt like I was being yeah. tested. So um, <laughs> please go ahead. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, I was trying to think about this on my manic drive back to the house. Um, and I think that the biggest theme is probably that you know, people in the past lived these really complex, interesting, and as one of my friends who is a linguist would say, flavorful lives, right? And to it's an injustice and a, and a disservice to just say, oh, you know, they ate turkey, they ate deer because we have the bones. So all of these studies in this book are going deeper to understand how food was not just integral on a nutritional level, but, you know, socially food is such a social thing. We all have to eat. And so it's something that we all have in common, um, that it's helping to move the discipline of archeology span further along into, to kind of rehumanize the past, right? We want to tell stories about humans in the past and that's, that's helping us do that. So, I mean, if there's a theme, that is it. I think, well, maybe there's a second theme and that it's not just zooarchaeologists and paleoethnobotanists that can talk about food ways, right? I mean, but you do need to have some understanding of food and food ways and, and cooking and um, diet and subsistence. But, you know, archaeologists from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of specialties can contribute to food waste studies. That's great. Erin, would you add anything to that? No, I think she's. Uh, I think she's pretty much nailed it there. I think <laughs> that uh, that sounds pretty good. Are there any other must reads in the collection that we didn't talk about that you think are making good contributions to the to the conversation? I love them all. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> now that I know that you personally invited them all, it would be hard to pull one out. But Erin, I think that Rachel Briggs' chapter on the histories of hominy. Mm. is really fundamentally interesting. Um, you know, I think that that also has a really direct connection to uh, historical Southern cuisine, you know, reaching out of the archaeological past and into how we sort of conceive of Southern food or Southern food ways today. Um, and I think that's, I think that's really interesting stuff. Um, I also think that 
the chapter on Dust Cave has some really interesting information. It is set very early in the history of human occupation of the Southeast. So at the end of that first American period, right at the ends of the last ice age, and really gets into the fact that, you know, the nitty gritty data shows us that people were not just hunting mammoths or hunting mastodons, that instead they had this very involved diet that involved, that, um, you know, focused on extracting acorns and parching and storing acorns and specifically um, hunting and uh, trapping probably birds as well in the, in the flyway. And so, that, you know, it's not just this one size fits all idea of past diets, but instead it's this multi-layered thing you know we go to the grocery store today and we buy more than one type of food and they were doing exactly that same thing in the mm-hmm. past yeah Tanya, yeah, i was i was gonna say that the rachel's um chapter on the histories of hominy is just it is one of my favorite i'm a huge fan of her work and i think um the type of work that she is doing really should give a like we should all be reading it and going hmm i need to really sit and think with on this for a while, right? Because it's, it is definitely bringing in not just a historical perspective, but the social perspective of it. And that, you know, you hominy is a thing, right? And it was a food way. And it wasn't just the maize that was being traded back and forth because sure, fine, you can have corn, but if you don't know what to do with it, you know, what are you going to do with it? Make popcorn or try to eat it off the cob, but you can't support a society on popcorn. So, um, so, you know, her essay really helps us think about, um, this particular food way in a, on a much deeper level. And I, I really do uh, like this chapter a whole bunch. It's great. Well, the introduction ends with a vision for the future of foodways archeology. span uh, and you call for more attention to everyday foodways and not just feasting, um, richer, more shareable data sets. Uh, so Tanya, say a little bit more about what you see coming for, for foodways archaeology in the region. Um, I think that, you know, people are just in kind of, you know, the, the professional circles that I am in touch with. Um, it seems that people are very interested in looking at the, the daily quotidian foodways, Um, Because, again, it's not just about these massive feasts that may or may not have occurred. You really have to identify what people were doing on the daily to understand what could have been special or extra special. Um, I know in my own work and and some of my students' work, we're looking more towards the effects of colonization on foodways and how um, the, you know, clash of cultures changes both cultures, foodways, and how they're adapting and how those persist. Um, the shareable data thing is huge. It's a big thing that I I push for. Um, I'm I'm in some working groups that are trying to deal with this, and it's it's difficult. It's if we had known, you know, 50 years ago that we would have the ability to share these massive data sets, maybe we could have have um, set up some really, you know, clear-cut standards, Mm. but everyone collects their data their own way. It's the same data, just collected differently or in a different format. And and just trying to figure out how to make it usable for other people is super important. And then to actually get it out there for other people to use. Um, There's, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you really can't 
completely interpret some of these behaviors without multiple data sets. Well, right. if, you know, you're trying to find data sets that are not ones you generated, how do you do that? And, and you know, these kind of open access data sets are, are where we should be turning to. Well, uh, can you tell us more about your next project, your, your project right after this, the Mastodons and Mississippians, uh, Adventures in Nashville's Deep Past? Erin, uh, tell us about that project. Sure. Yeah. So this is a new book. It's just been published by Vanderbilt University Press, and it is part of their new series, which is called Truth, Lies, and Histories of Nashville. Is that right, Tanya? Um, and so it's it's conceived of as being short public facing volumes, 25 of them in celebration of Nashville's 250th anniversary coming up. And the idea of, of Betsy Phillips, who's the editor, was to sort of try to bridge the gap between what the experts and historians know about the past and what the public thinks they know about the past mm. and sort of tell those stories about, you know, what, what, what you might not know or what you might have heard, but isn't quite right and try to do it in an engaging and sort of approachable fashion. And so we were lucky enough to be the first book in that series, um, you know, again, covering 10,000 years of history in a single five chapter volume. Um, and, and so we sort of approach this as just a stories of Nashville's deep past. So, you know, an introduction that generally talks about archaeology and the, the history of archaeology in Nashville, and then a set of specific stories talking about how we in Nashville today encounter that deep history, whether it's, you know, the saber-toothed sca cat skeleton that gives rise to the Nashville Predators mascot. Uh, we talk some about, about foodways. We talk about the first American diets and whether or not people are actually hunting mastodon or whether they're doing something different. We talk about snail farming on the Cumberland River. <laughs> and then we talk about this, you know, ongoing process of Nashville as it grows as a city encountering and coming to terms with, and more often than not, destroying uh, ancient Native American sites. So that's it's. It was fun to write. It was short to write. We wrote it straight through during COVID. I think we signed the book <laughs> the book contract on this last no, uh, November twenty nineteen, and then you know like started writing it, and then immediately we're writing it from quarantine. And so, I, I don't, I feel, when, I read, when I read through it, I feel like I can see like sort of an ebb and a flow where I'm like, oh yeah, that was a bad month when I was writing that chapter. Oh. <laughs> and that's sort of reflected in the thing, but, um, but it's out now. And uh, yeah, and it's, it's shockingly affordable for a university press book. That's wonderful. Well, what are you working on next uh, together or independently, Tanya? Or Can I just jump in? I was noticing this um, when you sent the question. So I think this is the following the publication of Mastodons and Mississippians. I think this is the first time in 14 years that we have not been actively writing something together. Oh, really? So, so we're, we're, we're not taking a break, but <laughs> yeah, we got this thing done and we don't actually have an active project together right now. Canon. Uh -huh. No, but I mean, well, we actually do have a project that we want to work on, our drought project. Oh, the drought. Project. Never mind. I'm wrong. We are working on it. That's <laughs> totally slid off my to-do list. I'm sorry about that. I should get it's back okay. to that. It's off my to-do list too, because I'm behind on some other things, but we do have where we want to look at climate change, um, in the late prehistoric period in the Mid-South and how that affected 
um, the communities living there, you know, everything from not just their food um, and food ways, but also their, you know, social structures and political structures and, and, um, and try to look at multiple data sets to, to time it out. Because we, you know, we've talked about the Mississippian period and that that's a couple, you know, hundred years things happen on a much smaller cycle, five years, 10 years that can negatively impact people. And so, or positively impact them. So we want to try to um, come up with a finer timeline for the people living during that time period. Wow. Cool. 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 I obviously am putting a lot of work into this lately. So, uh, <laughs> well, we did a lot at once. It was, we, we were doing a lot last year and then we were like, Oh, we've got to finish this project and that project. And I need to go yeah. teach a class or something. So yeah, back to that now. Yeah, we'll get back to it. Wonderful. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here. We've been talking today to Tanya Paris and Aaron Dieter Wolf about their new edited collection. I guess it's not new since you have a newer one. Uh, Baking Bourbon and Black Drink, Foodways and Archaeology in the American Southeast. Thank you both so much. I feel like I've had a, a very special master class. I feel uh, a little like you've taught me directly and I've been like the luckiest student um, after having taught a full day of class. So thank you both so much. Well, thank you. you. It's been really fun. Have I been a good student? Do you think I did a good job? (laughs) Get an A. I get an A for my first archaeology (laughs) class. Thank you so much. Well, thanks everyone for listening.